This is The Guardian. Today, the world now contains 8 billion people. Why does it matter? And what does it look like from the country set to become the planet's most populous place? So I'm here at New Delhi Railway Station, which is the main railway station in the city where I live. And if you really want to come and get a scale, really, of the country as a whole, of the millions of people that are on the move, of the diversity of people that live here, that work here, then this is an extremely good place to come. Hannah Ellis-Peterson is The Guardian's South Asia correspondent. There are families with young children. There are some young guys sitting having chai. I'm seeing the man with what looks like 50 sacks of rice piled up on one cart. And the real kind of richness of India and that its population brings is extremely evident here and kind of wonderful to be in the midst of. But it also raises some big questions about the kind of the future of a city like Delhi, which is due to ex- expand by another 7, 8 million people in the next 15 years. Currently, we're in the midst of pollution season. It's a country where inequality is only getting worse as the country develops and gets wealthier. So, you know, how this city develops, how it adapts, I think is very crucial to how India can also harness the potential of its growing, young, aspirational population. And when I'm standing here in New Delhi Railway Station, you know, these are the questions of... of that I think face India as it becomes the world's most populous country and as a city like Delhi becomes what will probably be one of the biggest cities in the whole world. The United Nations says there are now 8 billion of us living across the globe. Population growth in recent decades has been rapid and it's been driven primarily by the world's developing countries. For them, Population growth is an opportunity, but it does also represent a challenge. From The Guardian, I'm Nashian Iqbal. Today in Focus, beyond 8 billion, how can the planet support an ever-expanding population? Hannah Ellis-Peterson, you're The Guardian's South Asia correspondent, and you've been covering how this milestone of 8 billion people is affecting the region. Before we head there, can you explain to me how on earth can you count 8 billion people on planet Earth? Well, I mean, we have to talk about this always as estimates. You know, there's not someone standing there counting legs, counting babies. So it's a real kind of synthesizing of a huge array of data. And this is done by the United Nations Population Division. So population estimates on fertility, on mortality, on migration, and sort of use this huge array to kind of come to what we call this kind of estimate of how many people are on this planet. But given all that, do we know who the official eight billionth baby is? Yes. Yeah, so obviously it's all very symbolic. But last week on the 15th of November at 1.29am, Vinice in Manila was born. 
symbolic 8 billion babies sa Pilipinas. Ipinanganak si Venice Mabansag. But again, you know, it's obviously very hard to tell whether she is in fact the exact 8 billionth. But yes, in uh, in the history books, the 8th billion person will be this little girl in Manila. Anna, when I was at school, I definitely remember the world being at 6 billion. And now, in that obviously very short time since, we've jumped to so high, so fast. Has the world's population really been growing as quickly as I think it has? Well, I mean, yes. If you look, we hit our first billion in 1804. And then it took 123 years to hit the second billion. But by that point, the population then starts to pick up pace. It took only 33 years in 1960 for us to be 3 billion, only 14 years to be 4 billion in 1974, 13 years to be 5 billion in 1987, and then 6 billion in 1999. And that just took 12 years. And it just took another 12 years to be 7 billion in 2011. And, you know, now we've hit this point. Eight billion people, November 2022. Why is it growing at that pace? Well, part of the reason is people are just living longer. We've got advances in health, in education. And so people just stick around on this earth for a little bit longer than they ever did. You know, in 2019, the life expectancy was 72 years, an increase of nine years since 1990. And it's expected to reach 77 by 2050. So, I mean, aside from a little dip because of the COVID pandemic, in general, you know, we are living longer. But, you know, it's also important to say that in the least developed countries, this is not so prevalent. People live seven years less than the average person in a more developed country. So, you know, there is a huge discrepancy between, you know, developed nations and, you know, least developed countries. How is this population boom spread across the globe? Is every country seeing a population explosion? No, no, quite quite the contrary, actually. You know, in Europe in particular, fertility rates have been declining for several years now, below what we call replacement levels, which is when the number of children born kind of replace the people who die. And that's considered to be around 2.1 children per mother. That's what keeps a population stable. But when it falls below that, a population will begin to gradually fall. And the fertility level in Europe is 1.5. And in a country like Japan, this is even worse, where their fertility rate is 1.3, even lower in urban areas. Over the last 11 years, the number of people in Japan has been shrinking instead of growing. 2022 saw the biggest decline on record. And according to some estimates, Japan's population could be cut in half by the end of the century. You've got the populations of 61 countries, which are expected to drop by at least 1% between now and 2050, which is a huge number. Of the 20 countries with the biggest expected drops in population, 14 are in Eastern or Central Europe. Observers say that the region is now facing a demographic emergency as thousands of young You know, countries such as Latvia, Bulgaria, Serbia, Lithuania and Ukraine are expected to have kind of 20% losses. It's a huge loss. So this is definitely not a story that's playing out across the world. But as some places are declining, other places are booming. So where in the world are we seeing populations boom? So between now and 2050, 
over half of the projected increase in global population will happen in eight countries. And a lot of these are, you know, countries we still consider to be developing countries. So India being a prime example, but also the Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines and Tanzania. This is Lagos. More than 15 million people live here. What was once a small coastal town is now a heaving metropolis attracting economic migrants from all over West Africa. But as the city's population keeps growing, you can really feel the infrastructure buckle under the pressure. And in these countries, population is expected to, as they say, boom, at least for another three, four, five decades until it eventually levels out. Why is India, which is where you are now, why is India such a compelling case in the wider story of the planet's 8 billion people? So next year, according to UN projections, India will overtake China as the world's most populous country. Both countries currently have more than 1.4 billion people, but China's slowing birth rate is expected to lead to a decline in its population, according to the UN report. And the UN projects India will continue to see its population grow until 2050. So when looking at huge numbers here, India is already home to 1.39 billion people, which is four times the population of the US, 20 times of the UK. And we always talk about China in these huge numbers, but China is 1.41 billion and India is on course to hit 1.65 billion by 2060. So, you know, the amount of people that would be concentrated in this one country will just be, it's kind of an unfathomable number at this point. And so it's an extremely interesting case. And what is behind that growth? Why has India's population increased so rapidly? Well, so I think the, the first thing that's always kind of important to talk about is, you know, there's been this fear of a population explosion in India for kind of over a century. This even was there during British colonial rule. They used to use this idea of a population explosion as a way to kind of explain away these famines that, that were actually as a result of mismanagement and exploitation of people. So they used to blame the kind of overpopulating Indians. So it became quite a prevalent narrative kind of even back then. But then after India's independence, you know, you had this economic growth being prioritised over population control. And so even though India actually, interestingly, was one of the first countries to introduce a sort of family planning policy in 1952, it never really got properly implemented. Every completed sterilisation is seen as a victory in the battle against the poverty which an uncontrolled population would bring. And even if the birth control programme succeeds beyond the planner's wildest dreams, there will still be over a thousand million Indians by the end of the century. And so in a country which had a huge amount of poverty, a lack of education, you know, a lack of women's education, and also this huge demand to have male children, which means that women just kept having babies until they had men to sort of carry on the family line, meant that India's population has grown at a hugely fast pace. So we've got from 1947, it was 350 million. By 1997, it was 1 billion. After Astha was born, my husband went to get a cup of tea and the doctor came and told me, your daughter has been chosen as the 1 billionth baby. I didn't even understand what billionth meant. I was very surprised. But it's never got to the point which 
many people feared and which there was a lot of kind of fear mongering around, which is that India's population would grow at such a huge rate that it would not only overrun the resources of India, but actually we overrun the resources of the entire world. And that's never happened. The population was always growing slower than anyone really kind of talked about in these very doomsday narratives that happened. And how does it look demographically across the country? Are we talking about a relatively even spread of babies, working age people, middle aged and older people? So currently, India's population is very youth heavy, as you would say. The average age of an Indian is, is 29. And in, you know, some poorer states in the north where the population growth is, is much more enhanced, the average age is 20. It's an extremely young country. And that's produced as a very interesting dynamic for India, which is this developing country. It's this growing world economy. It's, you know, it's overtaken the UK as the world's fifth largest economy. So it's got this huge percentage of young, aspirational people who are the future of India and, you know, the way that in which they're educated, the way in which their future is will kind of shape the future of India. And, you know, because of India's huge size, that has a huge impact on the world overall. So India could become more developed, much more prosperous by making the use of what experts are calling this demographic dividend. Well, yes, but the whole point here is you need to harness this demographic dividend. And this is where India's great failure is, is it has to be men and women. And, you know, there is still this huge gender disparity in India in terms of education and health. But this idea of kind of harnessing the demographic dividend, of harnessing the young people, you know, that's what people talk about in terms of India's future as being one that could be, you know, full of potential and full of possibility. But it requires a lot of investment and it requires a lot of forward planning. So uh, my name is Aryan and I am 23 years old. I'm speaking to you guys from New Delhi, India. And what are you doing at the moment, Ariana? Are you studying? Are you working? So I'm uh, working part-time, but I'm also uh, doing my master's in uh, clinical psychology. I'm training to be a therapist. Did you always want to go into therapy as a career? So um, I grew up in a family of 10 people and uh, my father's a businessman. He obviously wanted me to join the businesses, but I always wanted to work in the healthcare sector. So it was pretty understood that, you know, I'm going to carve my own path out. And, and what's it like in terms of your peers and how competitive that field is? So um, in terms of India, it's very competitive because, um, you know, there is another degree that we are supposed to do after master's. There, so there are four or five seats okay, mm. in one university for that course. Right. And 5,000 to 10,000 people apply for it. Oh, God. So it's getting crazier, I think, you know, every passing year. And how do you deal with that pressure? So... Uh, you deal with the pressure one day at a time, I believe, you know, because the chances of finding a well-paying job that respects my profession are, to be honest, bleak in the country. And so now you've gone through all this expensive training. You've still got exams to pass. Yes. How hopeful are you about your future employment prospects in India? You know, the ideal place for me to be would be a hospital, you know. But considering the, the salaries, the, the money that I'll be paid, because in the healthcare sector, even if I strive to work for 10 hours, 12 hours a day, you know, I'll, be, I'll still be paid peanuts if I be honest. So my friend, one of my friends who was with me in my undergraduation, she has completely switched to the hospitality sector because she's well paid there. 
so now she flies to california brisbane and you know all these places you know there are a lot of educated unemployed people you know they have done their masters phd's and what not you know but they're still un- unemployed so there's a lot of educated unemployed people so that's i think a bigger problem in india have you have you ever considered leaving the country and maybe going elsewhere to find employment and to set up your professional life yeah to be honest it's one of the options if i be honest right now you know that if i do not find something that's well paying that's you know or for that matter even a job if i don't find a job i might migrate i might leave the country i might go to uk or i might go to canada you know to pursue something something or the other and it's it's definitely a dilemma because there's a lot of work to do here you know pertaining to mental health pertaining to you know healthcare sectors and you know so that would definitely make me feel sad that you know i have to leave the country where that i could have done something great here but then i have to migrate you know i have to go to some other country to make a life So Hannah, we've been hearing about the experiences of Ariane there, one that will be familiar to many people his age. As he said earlier, this youth bulge in India's population is a huge opportunity for the country. But what happens if they miss that opportunity? Well, so India has this issue because you have a huge number of young people who want to go on and do more, who are sort of exposed to the modern world, exposed to the developing world, but the economic growth has not come with them. So you now have a position where you have 10 million people entering the workforce every year, but there just aren't the jobs or the skilling opportunities for them. So you had a situation earlier this year where in Bihar, one of India's most populous states, you had 12 million people applying for 35,000 jobs in the Indian railways. Oh, wow. And there were huge protests and almost riots that broke out after that. A passenger train was set on fire. Another one was attacked with stones in Bihar in violent protests by students against a railway jobs exam. A heavy contingent of police failed to And while India's economy is actually doing relatively well, particularly compared to some other nations, growth in India remains extremely unequal. So when we talk about harnessing India's demographic dividend, you know, it's about harnessing all of the young people it's not just about harnessing the kind of section of society where the wealth is extremely concentrated and am i right in thinking that the bjp the hindu nationalist party in power at the moment have proposed a population control bill so this is actually particularly in one state i think it's quite important to clarify that this is in uttar pradesh which is currently india's most populous state has a population larger than brazil currently and that is only going to increase Our top focus this evening is on the draft legislation on population control in Uttar Pradesh. The question we're asking this evening is whether coercive measures work for population control or is this the need of the And one of the things that has been proposed by the state government but not by the central government is this population control bill where they talk about having two children and you can only get a government job if you have two children you only get certain benefits you have two children. But this whilst you know on the face of it seems like a kind of very simple way to control the population growth actually this is a sort of very thinly veiled attack on the muslims where there is this kind of very kind of entrenched myth that it is muslims in india who are overpopulating that they are trying to have more and more children in order to tip the balance and become the majority in india just to give you context uh, india is 80% hindu around 12 to 13% muslim 
But the fertility rate within Muslim communities is falling faster than it is for Hindus. And so it's very soon they will be at equal levels. But, you know, population growth has long been politicized in India. Speaking on the occasion of the World Population Day, Yogi Adityanath expressed concern over the demographic imbalance in communities and said that population imbalance in some communities is leading to chaos and anarchy. And so this proposed bill, which is very unlikely to actually pass, is a way to kind of stir up this hatred. It's a way to kind of feed on these divisions. Coming up. Can the planet support 10 billion people? Anna, what impact does a population of 8 billion people with growth largely happening in the global south have on the rest of the world? Yeah, so you've got 8 billion people in a world that is in the midst of a climate crisis. And so undoubtedly, people have an impact on the world. And what you've also got is the situation where the population growth is happening in developing countries where currently emissions have been quite low. But as people have more access to electricity, have more access to power, have more access to education, the carbon footprint of these countries is going to become even greater. And you've then got this issue of extreme heat, of climate crises, of you know, extreme weather events, which are you know, much more likely to hit a lot of these developing countries where the population is expanding. Bangladesh is on the climate change front line. It's geographically vulnerable to rising sea levels and stronger cyclones. Most climate migrants were fishermen or farmers. They've seen their homes, livelihoods, even their land disappear. So you're looking at issues of kind of, you know, whether people will still be able to live in the cities that they live in. To bring us back to India, in Mumbai, a coastal city of 20 million people, likely to reach 27 million by 2035. But by 2050, half of the southern part of the city is likely to be underwater. So, you know, you're thinking about a mass movement of people from that. Well, I think we've all become familiar with those predicted future scenarios where there is climate breakdown, scarcity of food and energy resources, conflict and all the rest of it. How worried are the experts about the current trends of population growth and the impact on the climate? There was a sort of UN official who talked about not engaging in population alarmism, particularly around this. So there is actually little evidence that population growth in and of itself contributes much to global warning. It's rising living standards that that are the issue because you've got a country like India, which is only at the cusp of the amount of development it's actually going to do and the amount of energy it's going to use. You know, the emissions used by its population of 1.4 billion are very small compared to the emissions used by a person in America. But as that increases, that's when it becomes really problematic. And so this is why the idea of kind of enabling countries to have green growth to build their growth not on fossil fuels but on solar you know they can develop and they can progress but you know they're not having the kind of footprint that people in the past or maybe even you and I would have. Hannah on the one hand there are developed countries struggling with low birth rates and not having enough working age people to support their elderly populations and then on the other Developing countries like India may be not being able to realise the potential of its young people because they just don't have enough opportunity or jobs for them. Isn't the answer quite obvious here? For some countries, you know, not just to be welcoming migration, but actively encouraging it. 
Yes, exactly. You could say that, you know, this would create a situation where people will understand the potential of people from other countries coming in. We create a situation of kind of migration to the benefit of different countries. You know, it's interesting, a country like Japan, which historically has a very kind of closed off attitude towards migration. But, you know, they also having this aging population and it might be that they also have to throw open their doors in order to keep their economy going. A worrying view of the future from population expert Masashi Kawai. It's like folding origami, he says. We are folding in on ourselves. It's a quiet, creeping state of emergency. And if we can't stop folding, it'll threaten our very existence. So this is in which way that demographics and population are very interesting because they they do have an impact on geopolitics. And so this is this idea that, you know, as the population grows, we have to think about it. And this is particularly because of the climate crisis. You know, we just have to think about population and kind of the movement of people as as something that's going to be inevitable and something to be embraced and that can actually work for the benefit of the population. As you said earlier, we've hit six, seven and eight billion people on the planet in our lifetimes in a pretty quick space of time. When should I book you in for our nine and 10 billion people on the planet story? So, you know, in 15 years, we're talking about 9 billion. But then after that, you know, it really starts to slow. According to the UN, the global population will peak at around 10.4 billion people in the kind of 2080s and remain at that level until about 2100. And kind of in the build up to that, about 2.4 billion people will be from sub-Saharan Africa. That's in the kind of final peak of the global population. It will be from sub-Saharan Africa and countries like India and definitely China will have already gone into decline. So despite the rapid growth we've been seeing in our lifetimes, later this century, things will really slow down. Well, actually, experts say that we've already kind of hit peak child. There will never be more children alive than there are today. And fertility rates are plummeting across the globe. This kind of replacement number we talked about, 2.1. So the number of women who will be having 2.1 children is getting less and less and less. And that is creating a situation overall, one of decline. Anna, when you look at where we're heading as a global population, How important is this milestone of 8 billion people in the grand scheme of things? I think this is an extremely crucial moment in kind of demographics, um, you know, how our world will be shaped, climate being a huge component of that. But, you know, how our cities and societies will be shaped by the number of people on this earth and the places that will remain livable for people and where the resources are spread. And, you know, we talked about demographic dividend in India, but we have one kind of globally you know, soon we will get to the point where we are more of an aging population. And the challenges that that creates, you know, when you have, you know, older people who are living longer, um, which is something to be celebrated, but also something that we need to really kind of focus on. And so when you have less young people, you will need talk about, you know, artificial intelligence and robotics to fill in the gaps of work. You talk about people working longer. So, you know, in terms of societal shifts, you know, there's a, there's a lot to come. And that's very tied into, you know, the number of people on this planet. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nasheen. 
That was Hannah Ellis-Peterson. My thanks to her and to Ariane. Do follow Hannah's reporting from South Asia and catch up with our coverage of this story from across the world by searching for the series Beyond 8 Billion at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 